There's a thing at the back of many books called an index. Maybe you don't give those much attention, but what if the index harbors its own revelation? Turns out that's the case for many of Swedenborg's theological works, and some even have yet to be translated from the Latin. What spiritual secrets do these indices hold in store for us? Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we discuss the depth of meaning in the Bible. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, tells us about the mystery of the disappearing magnum opus. And as an extra treat, we go to a marginal note made in 1747 to learn where Swedenborg was and what exactly was happening to his spiritual body this week in history. Hey, Curtis. Good to have you here. Hey, Chelsea. How's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for asking. Oh, man, I haven't really thought about it. I feel I feel refreshed. I feel like I have a new lease on life. Life is good. Nice. Oh, I'm really glad to hear it. And you know, this week, uh, we've had some exciting times on the channel. We have been um, ex- dipping into the Bible this week in Swedenborg and Life. And this, this past week, we talked about how it's damaging to take the Bible literally, which is a pretty... Uh, you know, strong statement, some might think. Well, just think about the pitch meeting for what the Swedenborg angle is on the Bible. Like, okay, we're going to have this thing that's pretty modern feeling and, and there's a lot of love in it and it's a worldview that accepts all kind of people and talks about, you know, spirits and the afterlife. And we're going to be fanatically loyal to the Bible. But, so we're already mixing things that don't, but also... We're gonna we're gonna make very strong, um, strange but and, and unfamiliar statements about the nature of the Bible. Okay, go. Let's see if anyone wants it. But that's exactly what Swedenborg does, and that's the territory we find ourselves in. But it turns out that that it's just an amazing way to look at it. And what we're hoping to do in that episode is really set the stage to look. There's an impediment to you getting the real spiritual power of this text. Yeah. And if you give it any time, you know, if you just try it out, this sense of like, okay, what I'm being met with on the surface, there's a lot more there. And somehow it speaks directly to my spiritual life, you know, then just even the most bizarre, you know, parts of it can take on this whole new dimension and life and application. And I just, I found that just over and again, a really um, just mind blowing and, and yet really almost comforting experience to have is gorgeous yeah and so if any of you listening didn't get to watch our episode this week you can find it on our youtube channel uh or if audio is your thing you can listen to it on the swedenborg and life podcast channel where we put all the audio versions of our videos that we have on the youtube channel and so if we just pop into our lives for a moment yeah what is maybe the weirdest or most or weirdest but most meaningful biblical imagery that has helped you in your spiritual life. And whether this is something recently or just like something that, you know, or, or even a, a flip on it could be what is the, um, you know, what what's an image or a story that surprised you with how relevant it was, even though like you wouldn't have guessed it had that kind of relevance. 
Yeah. So I'm thinking of some of the ones that we covered and um, the one where Noah's sons walk backwards to put a blanket on him or a tunic on him when he's drunk. And that internally is talking about not, it's talking about a lot of things because the the spiritual meaning is is multi-layered, but this idea to not dwell on the faults of people is um, quite, it's not necessarily what you would assume religion is calling you to do since we're laying out what's good and what's bad. You'd think a key part of that is to identify what's bad in other people. But the idea of, look, we, yes. you know, we don't even, we're just, I'm walking backwards and putting this over you. Cause that's you. Yes. I, t- to me, it's, it's rather than, yeah, it's, it goes from, okay, this is, they had an alcoholic father and they're, they're doing something to, this is a pretty noble way to be and it's a complex one you have to walk a line but i do like that uh, as a concept i don't know if that's the best one but i you know you put me on the spot so that's my first one (laughs) yeah yeah well that's i think that's great and that's just i i think that's a beautiful image and um and really something that can it's one of those stories in the word where it can seem like well that has nothing to do with me you know some some family's sort of weird experience you know with the the children having to sort of take care of their dad in this awkward moment or something. But, uh, but to realize that that actually is this capsule of, of spiritual nutrition for, for each of us. And that with that message you're describing of, of sort of not seeing, uh, you know, being willing to sort of uh, see the good in somebody and not be focused on, on the bad. Thinking about in a lot of, I guess it's Psalms and prophets in the word you have God talking about his wife or he'll talk about like divorce kind of imagery and to learn that that is talking about God's relationship to the church or various churches brings this emotional potency to me because you think of God as being interested in people in sort of a dry abstract way but to hear some of the heartbreak in there of God feeling like, well, with, with, with every church he's trying to set up organizationally or, or within each of us, that God is really trying to, to marry us and, and live there and really wanted this to work. And sort of the heartbreak of like, because uh, we can think about, you know, religious eras gone wrong and just kind of, again, not go backwards with the cloak and kind of ridicule how, how they got it so wrong. But that there's this heartbreak for God who was really trying to say, I want to spend my whole life here with you. Uh, to me, that that helps give me an insight into the, to God as a, a, a thing that loves like we love, you know. Oh, that's great. And that uh, reminds me or sort of just playing on that theme. I think it's in Hosea where um, that's one example where God is lamenting this like, I took care of you, you know, since when you were young and you like since you were just born and I was, you know, and then, you know, it's the whole like you played the harlot or whatever, you know, all that kind of intense imagery. And uh, but then there's one of my favorite verses in there that's like, um, I, I led you with bands of, oh, with cords of human kindness and with bands of love. And I'm like one who lifts a child to its cheek. Like, that's how I hold you. Like just the most sort of loving and tender language of the way that the Lord cares for us. 
and to be able to take that personally, you know, sort of seeing through the kind of harsh um, external images that the text is portraying, it actually is communicating this just like, I mean, it's a phrase that the Bible uses a lot is just everlasting love. You know, yeah. um, it's not it's not dismissive. It's not condescending toward us, even though you can get some of that from the literal language. It just it does bring God, the idea of God to life. Yeah. And so if if you're listening and you've had a strange Bible story or anything come to your mind or like feed you in an unexpected way, we'd love to hear about it. And you could um, respond to our reflection question for this week, which you can find on our community tab on YouTube or uh, wherever you might follow us on social media, whether that's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and uh, all at Off the Left Eye. And we'd love to hear your responses to share in sort of this this odd and yet totally powerful beauty that the the Bible has in being able to help us. And so that's for this last week. But now we're going to be continuing with the Bible this week and exploring a very specific verse of John 3.16. And if that doesn't already ring any bells in your mind, it's where it's written, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the only Bible verse that makes it onto cardboard signs at sporting events. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> it might be the most, the one that you see the most on billboards on the highway and things like that. And I mean, it's a beautiful message. Don't get me wrong, it's talking about God's love, just like we were just describing, but it ends up being read in this very exclusive way that you have to be Christian or else, you know, like it, that there's this, the external association with the Christian church in this world is like necessary to people's salvation. And that's just honestly not something that, that Swedenborg, uh, that, that was born out in Swedenborg's experiences of the spiritual world. And it's strange, it's a little bit prickly of a thing to hold emotionally, that verse, because it seems beautiful, it's talking about love, but then there's this this bizarre dynamic where God is giving his son to be sacrificed and throw in the ties yes. to organizations. It just doesn't hit you as cleanly as it could. Like, do we need to send it back to the editors? What's it really talking right. about? I think when yes. you get to the internal sense of that verse, you get that, that it fully delivers the the impact that it seems to want to deliver when you first read it. Exactly. And that's, and you're right that there's the, there's the sort of uh, how to understand the Trinity is in this verse. And, and then also, yeah, that what does it mean to believe in, in Jesus? And so then what does it mean to have everlasting life? Like what, what are, what are those essential ingredients? And so this is just a case in point of, you know, to read a verse like this, looking for this internal sense, it can give us uh, a much broader and interesting understanding than, than just taking it literally. So that's, that's what we're going to be exploring this week. And I hope you will come along the journey with us. You can watch, uh, the this episode that's going to air tomorrow monday on our youtube channel that'll be the swedenborgen life show and then but we'll be continuing to explore john three sixteen throughout the week with news from heaven and and if you have questions about this you can comment under our videos or join us on friday for our swedenborg live q a show so curtis will you uh stay on the line so to speak and hook back up with 
Jonathan and I to talk about where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history at the end of the yeah, show. Yeah, I'll cancel my 12 o'clock. Okay, thanks. <laughs> All right, talk to you then. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going? It's going well, Chelsea. How about for you? Good. And so I'm happy to be here again with you and to hear about, you know, any the any new insights you have from your work doing the New Century Edition translation of Swedenborg's writings. Um, and, you know, they are so core to what we do at Off the Left Eye, uh, being able to have not only a fresh, accessible translation that's been translated for a modern audience, but also because you're dipping into the history and like the context of these works. And so last week uh, you were talking to us about the the introduction that you've gotten to write for the 1763s, which is the volume that's coming out soon. Um, and so I'd love to hear, you know, any just any any update this week on on any of those fronts. Well, I think this is the week um, that the volumes are slated to start shipping, which was terribly exciting. Wow. And the thing that's on my mind this week is that there was one particular aspect of the research that really caught my attention. And that as far as I know, I, I've certainly never read anything that anybody ever said about this before. It's sort mm. of a feature that no one's noticed. And what I call it sort of facetiously is um, the the strange and amazing case of the disappearing magnum opus. Hey, I want to read that book. <laughs> the, uh, and it's all about Swedenborg's relationship to Secrets of Heaven. Hmm. Uh, so the first thing he starts publishing theologically is Secrets of Heaven, and it's absolutely massive. Thousands and right. thousands of quarto pages, I think some two million Latin words. Took him eight years to to publish uh, and a little more to write. Wow! And um, from the very beginning, he started heavily cross referencing the work. So you actually get the first cross references in it before you get to section one in the text. <laughs> and uh, as it goes along, you get these longer and longer chains of cross references going back uh -huh. because he was indexing as he went. And so uh, then in the 1758s, he decides he needs to change it up. It seems, we talk about this a little bit in the introduction that uh, to the shorter works of 1763, that he was feeling that Secrets of Heaven by itself wasn't getting the kind of sales. The, the, he didn't care about the income. He didn't even make money off the volumes. But, mm -hmm. but uh, what impact was it having? Was it having enough impact? So he instead put out these five works of 1758, starting with Heaven and Hell and the four others from that year, Yeah, and made them much smaller so that just those five could fit in one volume of Secrets of Heaven. <laughs> yeah. And he did a triple job of indexing Secrets of Heaven and included these sort of triple indexed passages. By that I mean he would first of all index a given section number, and then he would pull together a bunch of those into a second order index of, a, he would have a sentence that had a whole chain of references at the end, and then he would pull together those statements and chains into a whole paragraph 
it's departing from numerical order to put it all together. In, in, and, this, in the 1758s, you're saying? Yes, that's yeah. right. And, and so uh, an interesting feature of the 1758s was that they were written and published in one order, but yeah. he consistently refers to them in a different order. Huh. So we think of this as like the composition order as opposed to presentation order. But if you put them in the order of original comp composition, we made an estimate of how much of what we call this index-like material pointing to Secrets of Heaven there was. Yes. And in the first of the five, it was about 6%, which is heavy. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a lot. It's noticeable. Then the next work was 19%. <laughs> the next one, 22%. The next one jumped to 69%. And the final of the five works... 80%. It was 80% index-like material. 80% of the work Almost is just... Almost nothing else in there. <laughs> just says, go back and read Secrets of Heaven, right? Or yeah. any other... Wow. And How does so that count? You know? <laughs> he's <laughs> very, amazing. very excited about Secrets of Heaven and really wants you to know about it. In fact, there's a, a, um, a review of Secrets of Heaven that came out... Because someone read the works of 1758, nice. this uh, scholar named Ernesti in Germany, and uh, the 1758s told him so many times, you really have to read <laughs> Secrets of Heaven, that he finally broke down and said, okay, I'll read it. I'll review well, it. Well, that's, that's the right kind of advertising, right? They say somebody needs to see something at least, whatever it is, three or five times before they even register, like, oh, that exists, and maybe I want to go check it out. That's right. <laughs> so, so there So he go. hits it again and again and again. So that is not the disappearing magnum opus. I'm referring to Secrets of Heaven as the magnum opus. It was the largest right. thing he ever wrote and put a tremendous amount of work into it. And it seems to just, yes, he's, he's building up the amount that he's referencing it in the 1758s. Right? That's right. Then you have the five-year gap that you and I talked about in another episode. That's right. And in 1763, in the preface to the, the Lord, or traditionally titled The Doctrine of the Lord, he starts out for the first time ever kind of describing for his readers his publishing program. Okay, And yeah. I'll quote from it. He says, some years ago, I published five small works. Number one, Heaven and Hell. Number two, New Jerusalem and Seventy Teachings. Three, Last Judgment. Four, White Horse. Five, Planets or Earth-like Bodies in the Universe. No mention <laughs> of Secrets of Heaven. It's buried. The... The disappearing magnum opus. Huh. Now, what on earth happened? Yes, to and, not even mention uh, it. Wow. In the shorter works of 1763, he does mention it, but the first mention, uh, you know, these works are in section numbers, mm -hmm. and the Lord is about 65 sections long, and in section 64, <laughs> the second to last, <laughs> not in the main text, but in an author's footnote, the first footnote in the work, you have a brief mention of Secrets of Heaven and some references like he couldn't resist. He just threw in a little <laughs> bit down there. <laughs> and just to be clear, so the Doctrine of the Lord, this work you're describing, is the first of, the, of these really, really short works that were published in 1763. That's correct. Okay. And as he goes forward from there, there's hardly any mention 
So what on earth happened to something that was 80% of a work in 1758 <laughs> and now is not even listed in your previous publications? It's really bizarre. Yes. And I should cut to the chase by saying we don't really know why. Yeah. You know, we don't know what happened. There's no letter. There's no clear sort of statement from him anywhere. By, by, by the way, I often say that when Swedenborg drove, he never used his turn signal. Um, he, he doesn't often tell you, I'm changing now and here's why. <laughs> you know, you just get the evidence of the works themselves. <laughs> Later on, as his works unfolded, he did, I think, in Revelation Unveiled, his great work on the book of Revelation. Yes. Uh, I think there's some 20 references to, to 20 of Heaven. in that whole thing. Which is... Not much for him. The work is 629 pages long, and to only mention Secrets of Heaven, this massive work that he put invested so much of his life in, to only mention it 20 times in there is not much for him. He was a very cross-referency person. And in True Christianity, there's some 30, you know, in a comparably sized work. At the end of uh, Marriage Love... He has a list at the back because he'd published all his works anonymously, which is something right. you and I also talked about at one point. Uh, he gives a list of the other books he's done, and he does list Secrets of Heaven there. So it's not like there was anything right. wrong with it. Um, but uh, And so we went and studied for this introduction. We studied the what about those manuscripts in the five years when he didn't publish anything from 1758 to right. 1763. What's going on with Secrets of Heaven in there? At the beginning of this manuscript uh, known in the NCE as Revelation Explained or traditionally titled Apocalypse Explained, the first two or three chapters have an abundance of references to Secrets huh. of Heaven. And in fact, he includes in section three just a quick little note to tell the reader, hey, all those four-digit numbers you're going to see, that's huh. from Secrets of Heaven as if that was part of his game plan, and that was being written in 1759, right after the 1758s. But then in chapter four, there's less, in chapter five, it goes yeah. down, and chapter six, and it pretty much, we actually have graphs. We have two graphs huh. in this introduction to the shorter works of 1763, just sort of showing the amazing decline from almost 200 references in the first chapter to basically none in the last three of well, that, Revelation that Explained. That is so fascinating um, because I don't think you've mentioned it that during this five-year publishing gap when we did talk about it of like the, the different economic, you know, the things that were going on in the economy at that time and, you know, the, the cost of paper and the Great, great War, um, you know, that he's drafting Apocalypse Explained, which is how I'm used to referring to it as, but that is his, basically a, a very similar work to Secrets of Heaven, but he's going through the book of Revelation. He's jumped right. all the way to the end of the Bible, and now he's going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But so interesting that he never publishes that work, because you mentioned it's not till later, no. and I don't have the year in mind, but I'm assuming it's not till after the 1763s, that he does write sort of a re- he redoes the thing and publishes a much shorter, uh, but in that, I mean, I think it's still, what, two volumes or something of Revelation Unveiled. That's right, in 1766. And that was, um, it originally came out as one single volume, right. just the difference between Okay, Latin it was a single English. Latin volume. Have, yep. It takes us more words to say it, so it turns into two in English. But 
But uh, so he does kind of revisit it, but he starts again from scratch, yeah. basically. He uses some of the material, but he basically starts from scratch and has a much shorter— uh, it, if Swedenborg covered three-quarters of the Book of Revelation— and that fills six volumes in English. It would have been eight if he'd wow. finished, at least, because he was likely to get very right. excited about the last <laughs> couple of chapters of Revelation Explained. And so it might have been nine, for all we know. And instead, to do all that in two English volumes, or one Latin volume, was a great reduction. Yeah. Uh, it's just very interesting. To, I, I wish I knew what exactly was going on. Well, it's just, it, yeah, it just seems like that's amazing evidence to have that the drafts that he has of Apocalypse Explained themselves are showing this major decrease in, in referencing. That's right. Yeah. From chapter to chapter, you can watch it go down where <laughs> it, it just down, d- it dries down. up yeah. and almost disappears. And the other manuscripts from that intervening time, a lot of which were drafts for these later works too, show just this reduction and this minimal amount of... Hmm. referencing again occasionally he can't help himself and he puts a burst of (laughs) you know references to secrets of heaven in but uh, we don't really know whether the work was was it not available uh you know was there some reason it was such a change in strategy but the main takeaway for me is that swedenborg was so passionate about getting the word out and so devoted and it's not like he had any ego wrapped up in doing this massive thing that took him almost a decade. It's like, well, if that's not working, mm. we'll leave it aside. Move wow. on. We'll do these shorter works. We'll hardly mention Secrets of Heaven if that's not working for people. You know, and I don't think there was anything wrong. There are people who are just tremendously devoted to Secrets of Heaven. It's such an awesome work. I'm editing right. it right now, as you know, and—, and um, just loving it. It's amazing. Uh, but to, it just shows his flexibility, his creativity, his passion and drive to get the word out there that, hey, yes. whatever it takes, whatever's going to work, that's what that I'm interested in. That is so in. fascinating to sort of see that see that flexibility in action and, and see how it's shifting the terrain of the kinds of theological works that we do have from him, you know, and, and just such a variety yeah. that we get to explore. Wow. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. That is a real treat to get to hear about that from you. And I wonder, will you stick around now for us to explore where Swedenborg was this very week in history? I'd love to. All right. So Jonathan and Curtis. Hey, hey. Last week, if you... uh, Remember, we were talking about Swedenborg's work at the Board of Mines and him, this like monumental moment when he's choosing to leave his work and uh, give all of his time to working on uh, this more theological work, like study of the soul um, and study of the Bible, work that he had started. Yeah. And, um, And so this... So he hasn't written Secrets of Heaven yet, which was his like biggest main um, work. But uh, this week in we're still going to be we're here in 1747 still because just a couple weeks later, um, I think he's in Holland at this point because we know he was leaving for Holland. Um, That's what we talked about last week. And and now so he has this little um, note that he makes, which 
has sort of an interesting history in itself. So the the way where I read it is in his is in what we now have this posthumously published work called Spiritual Experiences. But what that is, is just a collection of all of these um, notes that he made to himself about the experience, these spiritual experiences that he was having. And some of them he put more um, like he kept a very specific journal for it um, where he would write down everything that was happening or I guess the most remarkable things. And but then there's other like marginalia in his other works where he might just be working on something else. But something happens and he's like, I got to write this down, you know, and he'll put it in in the margin. Um, Can we make a band that's called Marginalia? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's upcoming. Yeah. <laughs> they can do the all whole, the music for this podcast. The whole way that spiritual experiences came about was uh, quite random. He, he originally started it as indented paragraphs in another work that we've called the Old Testament Explained or the Word Explained. The Word Explained, which, yeah, which he had just sort of finished writing at this time in 1747. Yep. And then he starts um, writing things in the back of another you know, he would actually cut the pages out and sew them together. You could sort of mix and match them, <laughs> and paper was very expensive. So it's not like he sat down and just penned one work. The main reason you know that these things are connected with each other is that he indexed them together. Uh-huh. And, and that's what suggested that, oh, this became. I think he just thought, oh, I'll just jot this one or two down. And then it became this thing that stretched to over 6,000. Right. section numbers and uh, it was extended over 20 years of his life. And thank goodness that he did it. I feel like you get some of the clearest, most valuable insights you'll get anywhere in Swedenborg from these these journal entries. And we have it. The fact that we have it mostly translated into English is amazing too. That's right. And there has been a quite recent translation. It doesn't yet include the index, but I believe that's being worked on right now. Uh, and uh, you'd say, why do you need the index? Well, the main text is four volumes. The index is another two full volumes. The index is huge. Wow. And is often clearer, better entries than than what was originally written. He expands it in the index. So uh, that's uh. important material that's still awaiting to be – it's never been translated Are into English in any form there's as far so as I like know. Two yeah. new volumes of Journal of Spiritual Experiences coming out. Oh. Yes, and they're very closely related because they're an index to the four that oh, we already have. Man. But, but, but you uh, never that's know. Been I mean, a long it's just like recently, right? And you're, you know, um, you know, the new century edition is remarkable in its most recent um, translation of New Jerusalem. Am I right? And, and maybe the others because you guys right. are keeping the um, all that index-like material, all those. Yes. Cross-referencing. The cross-references, yes, yeah, exactly, because right. that's the kind of thing that, like, there's actually material in those things themselves. They're not only pointing other places. They have, like, oh. content in them. Sometimes the only time he ever says something is in what is supposedly this index entry, uh, or right. it looks like a sort of a little cross-reference. Oh, if you want to see more on this subject, see the following numbers, uh, meaning section paragraphs in so, Secrets so who, of Heaven. So who knows what we're missing in these two volumes of no, <laughs> the Spiritual Experiences Index. True. It's going to be interesting. And I remember doing a whole News from Ebene- uh, Heaven episode just out of the indexes, and it was because Dr. Jonathan Rose told me there's extra <laughs> content in there. So now, right now, I'm learning for the first time there's that kind of indexing on Journal of Spiritual Experiences. 
I, I, why didn't anyone tell me this before? Yes. And I should so, have mentioned guys, it. I'm, I'm old enough to be told these things. <laughs> to, to pull it back to um, this number that we're talking about today where he gives a date, 1747, and he says the 7th day of August. And so it's given the number 148 uh, and 1 6th um, in spiritual experiences. And that's because it has a date so we can place it after the word explained. But where does it exist, Jonathan? This is actually written on his on another index, isn't it? Another index, because <laughs> another thing he did at that time was just for his own purposes in his spare time, index the entire Bible. And in a way, he did it six times over. You know, he would looking for different sorts of things. Uh, so he went over and over thousands and thousands of pages. Oh my goodness. And he did an index that was just of Isaiah and Jeremiah, which were two of his favorite biblical books, the mm-hmm. prophets. And, um, and they're long books. There's a lot of material there to index and a lot of imagery and so on. Right. And that's in what is called Codex 6 in his manuscripts. And on the front kind of inside you know, front cover, like, like where so you to write speak. your name to be like, this is my book, right? <laughs> Nowadays, he jots these three little notes, and the third of them is the one that we're talking about today. Wow. Okay. If we've learned anything, is that indexes are very important. Um, don't throw them away. So here's what he wrote on that little in first page um, that we have in spiritual experiences, number one forty eight. It says, "A change of state in me." Introducing me into the heavenly kingdom in figure. That's remarkable. <laughs> just just nodding down. A change of state in me, introducing me into the heavenly kingdom. And this is happening after he's left his work at the Board of Minds. So it's like, what does he mean? Yeah, and as you say, just a, a week or two. After he quits his day job, so to speak, uh, this amazing shift goes on. I think of his spiritual awakening as happening in a number of different facets. And uh, there were, you know, visions and strange dreams at night, what he calls preternatural sleep. And then it started to, uh, then it really got to be more like full on spiritual experiences at night. And and then it shifted into the day, and he was having open conversation with spirits and angels, which we talked about before. Uh, but um, this, to me, I don't know. It's just a little statement. You could ignore it. Yeah. But it seems like a big deal uh, that he came into this kind of image of the highest heaven. I mean, in his hierarchy— that's the highest one, right? The heavenly yes. or the celestial heaven, the heavenly heaven, the one that's really heavenly. And um, and so I, I think it marks sort of a watershed. And it's very interesting that after this, sometime after this, is when he starts to write Secrets of Heaven and publish it. And, and there's no similar s- statement of like, oh, another big change or something. Yeah, right. How many times do you have to change into the celestial kingdom and this is it's such a turning point and curtis you were mentioning i can't remember now if it was last week no i think it was because you were describing how in the word of word explained 
it's such a different voice that Swedenborg has compared to his voice in Secrets I, I just of feel Heaven. like, wait, who is who's talking? Like, you're not, you, yeah. you're an imposter. It's like an elf when Will Ferrell discovers that that guy pretending to be Santa is not really Santa. <laughs> it's like, you're not, you're not Swedenborg. But here he is, <laughs> I guess, having this switch and just like writing a little Facebook style update to himself. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Probably fits on Twitter. It so, could have been his Twitter I mean, tweet. Including the date, which is like, yeah. Yes. You know? Well, I love that because it's like, he doesn't think, you know, I don't know, just things happen to us and it's like, I'm noticing this thing and I'm just going to write it down. And you just think, I'm going to be the only one that maybe knows this or whatever, but just so cool to have this little insight into his own little note to himself, like, hmm, this is something's different today, you know? Isn't that what people call a red letter day or, or you know, one you write in your journal or something where to say, on this day, this is what happened. And he doesn't say any more about it. That That's it. Yes. And that word figure at the end uh, is in imagine. The Latin is mm. in an image, which to me is kind of like the whole image and likeness. Um, mm. You know, some, something shifted in, inside him that I think was awesome. But he just, well... Okay, I, I'm going to want to remember this day when this happened. Yeah. That's really cool. I love all these different turning points we keep touching on in, in Swedenborg's light timeline because it's it's really amazing to see, to know where we are, everything that's happened that happens afterwards that he doesn't even know. You know, he doesn't know that he's, he doesn't know that this Secrets of Heaven, you know, and then the like we've talked about the 1758s, the 1763s, on and on and on, just like how, you know, what a what a threshold to be on, to be opening up to the heavenly kingdom in whatever way that means. I mean, for that's, you know, that's got to, ha- that has to do with love, <laughs> you know, in a big way, but he is somehow right. connecting into love in this big, powerful way that is opening his spiritual eyes, um, you know, lifting his mind into higher levels of wisdom for him to be able to write these books down, um, to, to write this information that that we now get to sort of play around with and share with people because it is so helpful to to our spiritual lives. Like, it does open up heaven for people, and that's so cool. I just cannot believe Swedenborg is about to drop two fresh volumes of Journal of Spiritual Experiences. You think about how much we're pouring over all this stuff that he's got now. This is like, this is my, this is a, feels like a one, a red letter, letter day for me. The day I learned there's new spiritual experiences coming out. And I never had this thought before. I, I've known about that statement for a while, but uh, he was indexing Isaiah and Jeremiah. I mean, why did he have that book out on his desk, right? right? He was, right. he was working on this index of the Bible. And it seems mm. one possible conclusion is that, what turned him into a being of love you know, was what he was getting out of Scripture. Like yes. um, oh, that man. really had an impact on him, you know, reading those prophets. Well, thank you so much, Curtis and Jonathan. It is always a pleasure to talk to you both. And I feel like we've really uh, uncovered a lot this week. <laughs> totally cool. It's great fun. Always fun. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. You can subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye wherever you listen to podcasts. And if audio is your thing, 
Subscribe to Swedenborgen Life to hear our entire weekly lineup of video programs in their audio-only form. If you prefer video, subscribe to the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel, and you can explore all of our content and resources at our website, offthelefteye.com. And to become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, go to otle.cosvox.com to support our work with a donation. Can't spare the cash? It's like showering us in gold and diamonds to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. But you know what? Just having you there listening is a real form of support in itself. So I mean it when I say thank you for listening. I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next week inside Off the Left Eye.